Well, good evening, and thanks again for being here, and thanks for logging in with us. Uh, I want you to feel a part, for those of you at home sitting on a computer, it's easy to end up feeling like you're watching something on TV, but I want you to feel like you're a part of us. So in the worship, sing out loud like you're singing in the shower, would you? Get into our prayer time, and in a little bit, we're going to take communion, and maybe you want to to find the elements at home, break off a crust of bread, and find a a cup of juice, and and join us as we prepare our hearts for communion, even if you can't be with us in person. Uh, I don't know what it was, but a few years ago, something got into me when my daughter had her learner's permit. And since you're wanting to give them actual real driving experience with other cars on the road, there's this fine balance we end up working through uh, as we go through uh, this preparedness to to be on the road. And and so we weren't just taking her out on country roads. We decided we were going to eat at Matt's El Rancho down on South Lamar, which it's one of our favorites. I mean, give it up for Matt's, and, and their, um, their queso is outstanding. Uh, highly recommend it. But they're a popular place, and they have kind of a goofy parking lot. Not going to lie, their food's better than their parking lot because they have unusually small um, parking stalls and in a really crowded lot. And in Texas, everyone drives oversized cars, so it doesn't make a lot of sense. But It was a crowded time. It was dinner time. Uh, It was probably like, I think it was a Friday night. And Annika was driving, and this big truck comes down the wrong way of a one-way aisle. And we're sitting here, and there's a car that's kind of right here and one that's right behind us. And this big truck wants to turn left and get it. He's trying to exit. And so he's kind of like jumping forward a little bit. And I'm sitting in the uh, passenger seat, and I'm like, stop. Stop, because there wasn't enough room. And Annika's driving. She's like, what do I do? And she couldn't back up. Uh, So we're just sitting there like a sitting duck. And the guy kept going like he just couldn't wait, like it was an emergency. And when you know it, he goes for it. And he just turns, and his tires are about up to our passenger, like, excuse me, the the window of the car. And he just kind of goes right down, and you get these, like, skid marks down the side of our car. And he just keeps driving as if nothing happened. Now, I don't know what came over me in that moment. Because in that moment, I don't know if it was a daddy bear, like my daughter's driving, or I just felt personally like, like threatened, or if, I, if I've just watched too many Jason Bourne movies, guilty. But I unbuckle, I unlock and I just start sprinting. Now, he's going down there, and he's going to go left, and Lamar's right here, and I'm just beelining right for the driveway. I haven't thought things through, but here's the thing you need to know about me. I'm sneaky quick. I know I don't look like much, but I've got, like, ninja-like reflexes, and in this moment, I was just like, and I finally, and he's now, it's dinner time on South Lamar, and he's trying to exit, and he stopped. And so it's at that point I get up and I, and I get to the tailgate and I, I got you. And then it occurred to me, what's my plan? I, I don't have a plan, right? Because at, at this point I'm like, um, I have to be aware, like, am I ready to go to blows with this guy? Uh, 
and in Texas, when you're an impatient and a driver in a hurry and in an oversized truck, there's a high probability there's firearms inside. Like, what's my plan now, right? And so I, I kind of like, I, I do what anyone would do when they're confronting a grizzly bear or a mountain lion or if you see a mouse inside your home. I screamed. I mean, not like a little girl scream, but like I was like, hey! And, and I kind of inched my way like I wasn't going to let go of the truck because, right, I was going to hold him there because I hadn't thought it through. Pure adrenaline at this point that I don't know what was motivated by anything. But I get up to the window and I just start banging on it and he looks over and he rolls it down. I was like, hey, you just hit us! And in the most like quaalude kind of way, the most sedated way, he just looks over and he's like, oh, I did? I go, yeah, you got to come back. And he pulls the car out and this guy steps out. He's in bare feet. He's just come out of happy hour and his eyes are just at half mass and he just kind of wanders up and we do the whole exchange. Now, the reason I tell you that story is sometimes when we begin a pursuit, we pursue with full-blown adrenaline, but we pursue blindly. Sometimes we pursue people sort of with this reckless abandonment. Have you ever gone after something, not really thinking through the plan, but you just go after it? And then spiritually, sometimes we are led to follow with a deep sense of conviction. Sometimes we follow passionately. Other times we follow because we understand God's faithfulness, even though in this moment we don't necessarily have all the answers or feel like God's providing. Regardless of the time in your life or why you follow, what I would simply say is this. We need to learn that God is trustworthy because it was Jesus who said, come and follow me. And I believe the process of working out our salvation, one of the key elements, the hard elements, is learning to trust. Now, do we have anyone in the house tonight that has control issues? that has fear issues, that has a little bit of perfectionism in their makeup. So when we talk about learning to trust, what we're really talking about is learning to let go. Now, we began a series last week about, and we're calling it the movement. The movement is on. And what it's really answering the question, what we mean when we talk about salvation. And salvation is one of these things, while it is and should be an event, a time where you walked an altar and said, I do to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you began a kind of covenantal marriage with Christ. But the reality, the 99% of salvation is a process. And it's day by day, night by night, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part. And so I like to imagine salvation as something progressive and unfolding and dynamic, never to be static and thinking that somehow we've arrived. And tonight, I want to focus on this idea of what what does it mean for us to work out our salvation by learning how to trust God more? Are you with me? So if you have your Bibles, maybe you want to fire open the app. You can take notes. Uh, There's an outline on the app in the notes section. And you can save those notes and do what you want with them, review them later. 
But there's a, a, a passage out of John chapter 1. So imagine you're at the beginning of the book of John and Jesus is sort of at the early stages, the, the, the infancy of his public ministry. And so think about the chronology now. If he's going to go out, he doesn't want to go out alone. And if he's only going to be on earth for a little bit, he's got to find his immediate sort of inner circle, if you will. And so there is these very particular, very interesting, very second-guess-worthy invitations to come and follow. This is where we find uh, in, in, in John. Um, Laurel, could you just hand me my glasses? Because I, I walked up here without them. They're right behind you. Oh, sorry. Open. Thank you. Sorry about this. I'm that guy. I hate wearing glasses when I'm wearing a mask and then I take off my mask and I can't see things like um, just played the old card. Uh, Okay, so John chapter one. uh, And what we have is this picture of Jesus inviting people. So verses 43, watch this. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee and finding Philip, he said, hey, Phil, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Lot there, but we won't go into that now. Philip found Nathaniel, a lesser-known disciple, but in this case, it's kind of significant what he interacts with Jesus over. We have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law. Why is he calling him a new Moses? Because Moses was the one who delivered the people of God. And so they, now not under the oppression of Egypt or the Egyptians, they're looking for someone to deliver them from the Roman oppression. So it's like, we found the new Moses. That's, that's sort of the bait he's using to get him excited from the one the prophets wrote about. Jesus of Nazareth, can any, and the son of Joseph, and, and Nathaniel, in a very underwhelming way, says, Nazareth, are you kidding me? Can anything good come from there? And Philip's like, well, uh, come and see. And when, they, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, ah, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Super awkward way to greet someone. Uh, not something I've used, but Jesus. And there's layers here that I just want to peel back so that it becomes really vital to you. Uh, and he says, well, how do you know me? Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, Well, I saw you while you were under a fig tree before Philip even called you. And then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus is like, listen, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree, but you shall see even greater things than that. And then he added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, he wasn't giving him a lottery ticket for the best quiet times for the rest of his life. But there are some really important things that if we could just maybe step into the cultural Hebraic mindset, you might see this passage jump off the pages. So let me just give you a little background of what Nathaniel would be hearing and these other disciples. So... uh, When a a Hebrew child was between five and six years old, we call it kindergarten. They call it Bet Sefer. We teach the alphabet, and what they taught was the Torah. Memorization from five until 12 of the Torah. You understand Torah? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Are you kidding me? Uh, Deuteronomy, right? 
I mean, these, these are not easy readings. So the first five books of the Old Testament, five and six-year-olds would begin to memorize. Now, in the first century, girl, or excuse me, women would often be the worship leader in the synagogue. And so the, the, the boys would take this path down Torah, and the girls would really study the Psalms and the Proverbs, as well as Deuteronomy. So they had their chosen paths. Now, when they got to the age of 12, girls would typically, that would be sort of like their graduation, and they would begin to prepare for marriage, and because they married in their teen years. So they were, their academic pursuits were over. Now, a lot of the boys then, depending on how they finished in the honor roll system, they would probably go and begin learning their family's trade. This is just a blue-collar, agrarian society, so everyone worked the land, right? There's no white-collar jobs. There's no work-from-home opportunities. This is we work hard for a living. But there was... Now, you would become a religious adult at the age of 13, Significant age, a lot of significance about that without unpacking it. But this, this is just to say, this is when they're recognized as sort of a, 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 an adult member of the worshiping community. Now, the, the, the sort of A students would be allowed to continue in a, a kind of school, if you will, called Beth Midrash. Midrash is sort of the Hebrew version of dialogue. Maybe that's the best way to summarize it. But the boys would continue on in this sort of question and answer as their memorization skills. So you had to learn not only the answers, you had to learn how to apply them. And so when you were asked a question, you wouldn't answer with an answer. You'd answer with another question. And it was only the elite, sort of the Ivy Leaguers of the bunch, that at 15 could approach a rabbi and say, can I follow you? which was the same way of asking, do I have what it takes to be like you? Now, what did we just read? Jesus asking people to come follow him. Who is he asking to come follow him? Not the academics. He's asking the B students. Don't miss the nuance of this invitation because Jesus shows up and to all the people that had already kind of canceled out of school, at 12 they probably went into the tradesman industry. They were learning the family skill. Jesus goes and starts picking those guys, which gives great hope to people like me. And so we have this picture of Jesus saying, not waiting for them to come to him, Guys who have gone back to work the trade and he says, I know you think you came up short in rabbinical study, but let me just tell you something. You have what it takes to still be like me. And he does a whole reversal on the invitation to come follow. Because up until this point, every Jewish boy would find the rabbi and say, can I follow you? And he said, come follow me. So now that we have that clear, that little bit of Hebrew background, let's kind of unpack this passage again. Verse 46, he, this is Nathaniel talking, and he says, can anything really good come from Nazareth? And so I look at this, and I look at it, um, I don't want to read myself as the, um, as the sort of protagonist. I like to read myself as the antagonist in Scripture, kind of like, the slow one, the, the, the one who's probably messing up, the one who's sticking their foot in their mouth. And, and so I would just say to Nathaniel's Chris question, really, what did you expect? 
What did I expect? Did I expect something more spectacular? Did I expect something more um, powerful? Did I expect something um, greater or a better uh, reputation? When you started pursuing after Christ, what did you expect? Because let's be honest, a lot of times our pursuit of Christ feels underwhelming. And Nathaniel takes on that. He's like, Nazareth, Nazareth, are you kidding me? And he expected great leaders to come from great places. And he didn't expect it to come from some podunk fishing village. It was said that maybe like 500 people lived in this tiny podunk town of Nazareth. He's like, really? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And he's like, oh yeah, yeah. And so uh, I, I like to imagine that even in Nathaniel's wondering if anything could really good or uh, come from such an un unimpressive place and yet at the same time the irony is that Jesus is choosing unimpressive people who have dropped out who have gone back to the family trade he's choosing B students I, I mean you just totally missed a great chance to say amen come on people talk to me I mean this this is encouraging for the rest of us this is a super gracious approach to coming into the presence of God and he gives the invitation and and it sort of forces me to ask the question can anything good come from my life my limited means my limited intelligence my biases my prejudice my insecurities and Jesus gives us me a resounding yes and amen. And so then there's this episode of a fig tree, which you and I, like that kind of imagery is lost on us. But a fig tree had great symbolism. And so a fig tree that was alive and vibrant had this symbolism of peace and prosperity. But a withered fig tree, which we read about somewhere else in scripture, was always about despair and destruction. So there is this beautiful literary kind of cultural aspect that we kind of miss. But if you lived in a desert region, a fig tree was a large tree, like with, providing great shade. And many rabbi would sit under and have this exterior classroom so that they could be protected from the blazing sun and they would teach their disciples. So maybe Nathaniel had been reading under the shade of a tree and Jesus had seen him. That's just sort of speculation, but that's kind of what I gather based on what I understand of the nature of a fig tree. But he makes this sort of wordplay. And this is, again, what I typically miss. Because he's calling out, oh, a true Israelite. What does that actually mean? So the, the play on words is, if you're a Hebrew, you understand your descendancy in light of your descendants. So we serve the God of who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob was a man, even though he was a patriarch, known for his deception. So what does Jesus refer to in validating Nathaniel that kind of makes him feel good about himself because he's saying, you're better than one of the patriarchs. And he says, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. And you're like, what? Me? Are you kidding me? And so that's what we start to unsee. Now, we're going to come back to the Jacob reference uh, in just a minute. But in verse 50, he says, uh, he, he goes there and he says, well, you believe because, well, I told you what I saw uh, before F Philip came to you. Uh, and so the question that, that we ask is, what is it going to take for us to really follow and believe? Do we need signs and wonders? 
do we, without saying it, kind of follow God, but it's more like, what have you done for me lately? Is that the kind of faith that sort of bogs us down? And so when Jesus says, you believe because of this, it's actually more accurate to ask it as a question. Do you believe simply because I told you this thing? Simply because I gave you what, or I, I, told, I, I impressed you with my knowledge. And I have to say, as a consumer, I try not to be a spiritual consumer, but I sometimes go after God for what I can get, not for how I can grow in love and certainly grow in trust. And so Jesus asks him the question, um, well, do you believe simply because I saw you? Um, and it's like Jesus is saying, you have no idea, buddy. You have no idea what it's going to be. You are going to see, and he talks about what you're going to see, heaven and earth open up. And, and it's like saying, you are going to see extraordinary things, and you are going to see underwhelming things. But the question is, is can you follow me? Can you trust in me even when it's not your timing or your request? And so this is where it starts to get really personal for those of us who say, yeah, I'm trying to follow Jesus, but I'm losing steam. Now, last verse, it says in verse 51, he says, uh, he added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Central to what it meant to be an Israelite was to be kind of who we were in, as the people of God. And as Jacob had this long, epic journey of stealing his brother's birthright and doing all this stuff and kind of just getting by like just a scam artist, he's now having this wrestling match with God. And in a dream, we learn, this is Genesis 28, encourage you to read it on your own. We don't have time to unpack it here, but it's called Jacob's Ladder. And in the dream, there's angels descending and ascending. And what Jesus is validating now is that in Christ, he is Jacob's ladder. In Christ, we have this new go-between between heaven and earth. Now, let me just kind of conclude by simply saying, there will always be times in our life where we reach kind of a, a, a point and he says i can't do this on my own we reach out a point as i've given this my absolute best and i'm without resource i can't do this on my own strength and my own wit and my own wisdom and that's when we start to realize that we were never intended or even designed to do it on our own and so we get confronted with our own self-reliance our own human effort and maybe even our own lack of trust and the God, in God, to do it with and for us, and maybe in a different timing. And my point is this, crisis and challenge in our life always reveal a level of self-reliance. Do you have a problem that you keep bumping up to? You could go through chapters of your life and you go, what is it when I get to this point in a relationship? What is it when I've stayed at a job this long? What is it when... Um, I, uh, I get to this weight, or what is it when I do? And you just keep finding yourself like in the same sort of circular pattern of like, dadgummit, I want to get past this. And I'm simply saying, crisis and challenge have a way of revealing our areas of lack of trust or control, uh, and, and God doesn't want us to pass beyond that until we deal with it. So, so much of Christianity is rooted in our own self-sufficiency. 
And in this point, it's like saying, I believe in God and I give you my life, which is like saying, I'll give you 73% of me, but I'm going to hold back 27%. I'm going to give you my whole life, except I can't really trust you with the people who have wronged me. I can't really trust you with my children because I can actually love them better than you. I can't trust you with my financial earnings because I'm afraid that somehow you're not going to provide at the end of the month if I trust you to give at the beginning of the month. I mean, this is what is being called into question about how we trust and give our lives to God. And so the area we keep for ourselves, whatever area that is for us, is the area that we will continually be brought to conviction and crisis until we learn to trust in God. And this is like just me reading out of my own journal. Please don't take this as you're doing it wrong. (laughs) God allows us, I believe, to just stay in a place, exist in a crisis until we move further, until we can start to see and trust and believe that God actually sees, God is actually good, God cares, God heals, God is just, God provides It's like having a mastermind coach. I could think of several really great, historically great coaches. But if you take a great coach with a great team and the coach comes up with this master strategy, this master game plan, and all the players have their own idea about their own game plan and their own strategy, but the coach lines it up and he, and he appoints people based on their giftedness and skills and, and, and their talents that he's given them. And he's saying, now I want you to do this. And he creates a whole game plan to win the game. And then they go out and they don't function as a team. And they play as desperately talented individuals. And so transformation, I think, begins as we trust the coach's strategy that we somehow can learn to believe in God's tactics, the assignments that we begin and that we're just going to choose to be faithful and grow where we're planted and allow God to open doors in his timing that we trust in the game plan. And we adjust to living in this new kingdom reality. One of the things that, um, I wanted to set out to do, and I just want to talk a little bit just in closing about one of the things that I think makes Uh, Mission Hills particularly unique and why in my midlife felt like I wanted to start a new community of faith because there was no shortage of churches. Uh, But one of the things I was concerned about is how we were following Christ individually. We have kind of figured out corporate God. We've figured out how to do large worship and come in anonymously and not necessarily have any expectation put on us Like we could come and go and, well, there's always someone else to help or there's someone else to somehow um, care for the least of these. There's someone else. And one of the things I wanted to do was reimagine church as maybe a little bit more of a laboratory than a lecture. That it was more of an active learning environment than a passive one. And so at Mission Hills, for the last five years, we have really pushed for a kind of living faith. And so we've outlined these rhythms, and we want to give you a way to not only connect with God as a self-feeder, as, a, as someone who's intimate and personal with God, but we want you to have a kind of faith that you can leverage for the benefit of others, whether we're gathered or whether we're scattered. And then we want you to have a faith to be able to share, both in word and deed, to those people uh, closest. And now those closest might be in your cubicle world. Maybe they're in your home and they're your young children. But we wanted you to be able to have the words and the language and the practice to be able to give away and impart 
a living faith. So our whole mission is what I believe the church was supposed to do, and that is to make disciples. And we can't just make disciples by coming as consumers of religious goods and services and doing it. So we created something um, last year called Covenant. And we are inviting people to become covenant partners with Mission Hills Church. And let me just explain by that, because on January 31st, we're going to have a Covenant Renewal Sunday. We want you to consider this as your um, family of faith. And in every growing family, every member of the family is expected, out of love, to do their part. Now, if you're a child, we cut your meat for you. If you're an infant, you kind of get cared for. But if this is part of your family and you're of an adolescent age, listen, dad doesn't always love taking out the trash. Dad doesn't always love being the one to wash the cars. Dad doesn't always love being able to fix every broken thing. But what we're inviting people to do is to become a family of faith where we learn, we covenant together to love God more. What a great New Year's resolution. Increase in love for the Lord. And and we have tangible ways to do that where we increase in, in loving each other a little bit more. And then where we increase in loving those beyond our walls more. Some churches would refer to this as membership, but membership feels a little too institutional and it feels a little too consumptive. We wanted to put something more relational into the DNA. So when we talk about growing uh, this kind of being in covenant with Jesus at Mission Hills Church, what we're talking about is these sort of relational vows that we take one to another. And since salvation isn't just an event, like a membership night where we raise our hand and say, sure, I'll join. But we, together, as a community, renew our commitments to the Lord with each other. Our lives are changing pretty fast. Our times are changing really dramatically. And so from one year to the next, some of you have actually gotten raises. We need to reevaluate what our financial situation is. For some of you, this is my wife, you became empty nesters, and it feels like you got an eighth day in your week because you're no longer showing up at all the Little League things, and you're not going to the recitals and doing all those things. Those changes need to be accounted for. For some of you, you've gotten into a new position where you just feel like you might have found more discretionary time, or some of you have learned a new skill set. Whatever the case might be, we want to take time every year to work out our salvation in community and see how can I grow in Christ through this local body. Because it is being in community that makes the difference. There are things like marriage and parenting and certainly faith that we are not supposed to do in isolation. So we're going to go into a time of communion. And I just want you to consider some of the things that we've shared and examine your own hearts. The way communion is going to work, we're going to play a song, and I'm just going to invite you to come forward. And um, you can either come here and take. Gary will deliver them here for you if you want. Um, But we want to take these elements. These are kind of the to-go special elements. And just come back to your seats and continue this as a time of worship. And then we'll all take, after the first song, we'll take these elements together and Damaris will come and lead us through. Friends, if you're at home today, I encourage you to not just watch this unfold like a spectator, but we're going to invite you to participate with us in this act of communion. So will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would remind us of um, the areas of our lives that are yet to be surrendered. The areas of our lives where we need to maybe 
let go and trust you more. God, I pray that we would be able to believe that you are able and capable even beyond our own strength. So would you kind of reveal through the ministry of your Holy Spirit these things to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus and we give you this time together. Speak, Lord Jesus.